Thank you very much, uh, Rebecca. Can we uh, carry on in mo- for a moment in prayer? Earlier in our service, we sang that no heart can fully know how wonderful, how beautiful you are, Lord. Uh, There are mysteries that we will never understand this side of seeing you face to face. But sometimes those mysteries are important. They lie connected to decisions we make in the real practical world. So though our hearts may never fully know, we pray that our heads and our hearts might in some measure understand and appreciate what you have done for us and how it changes our relationships. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When we were planning this series on relationships, there was one topic that I felt should be included, but it almost never is. And that's the topic of headship and mutual submission. Whatever I say tonight, I risk alienating uh, people who may not agree with me. Well, all right, I'll take that risk, but I'll make a deal with you. If you don't like what I have to say, I'll leave. (laughs) Of course, if you do like what I have to say, I'll leave anyway, but there you go. And I want us to begin in John's Gospel, so do please find it, uh, John 15, uh, in your uh, church Bibles. We're not going to be looking only at this, we're going to be looking at other material as well. But I wanted to begin here because I think it's probably less familiar. Um, However hard I try, I can never get other church ministers to own up to having difficulty with John's gospel, though I confess I do. I find that it goes round and round in my head, and after a while, I know I've listened to something that's been very good for me, but I find it deeply confusing. So um, it's amazing how honest you can be if you know you're leaving. Um, It's not immediately obvious as you listened to Nick reading, but there are, in fact, two kinds of love going on in this passage. Two ways in which Jesus expresses the relationship that is love, and those two ways are echoed in the way that our culture seeks to express love in our own day, especially uh, romantic love. So consider verses 10 and uh, and 14. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Well, that's straightforward. Whether it's Jesus or not, we have a clear structure of command and obey. I say, you do. I command, you obey. It's 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 an unfortunately long word for something that's meant to be a shorthand, but can we call that hierarchical? I I say, you do. But it's not the only picture that's here. Consider the second part of verse 12, and then verse 13, and verse 15. 
Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 15, I no longer call you servants, because a servant doesn't know his father's, master's business. Instead, I've called you friends, for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. There, love is mutual. Show the same love that I have shown. And you can do it. It means laying down your life for your friends, yes, but I am going to do it, and you can do it, and we do the same thing. And then verse 15, this isn't a master-servant thing. It's not hierarchical. It's a friend thing. There, in those verses, the hierarchical picture isn't to the fore. This is much more equal. I do it, you do it, we all do it. Now, I should give us a bit of a health warning. Your brains will hurt tonight, but I do want it to be practical. What I want to do is to try to express at least one way in which the stresses of our time are written into the great debates that went on very early about how God loves us. Because if we know that they're written into something that's so ancient we'll get a little less stressed about working out what it means in our day. I wanted it read because it's less familiar, less familiar than another well-known text in Ephesians. But before we come to that, I do just want to notice that this is already about a relationship. This is about a relationship of friendship. What does it mean to be friends with Jesus? Is the emphasis on doing what he said because he said it and he's the boss... Or is the emphasis on doing what Jesus did because it's doing the same that Jesus did? Hierarchy or equality? Now, let's hop over to Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Some of you will know Ephesians very well. Others of you will have been, you're of the age, to have gone to lots of your friends getting married in the last few summers. And the brave Christian ones among them will have chosen uh, Ephesians 5. Uh, and you'll have sat there going, oh, that was brave. Um, but we're in um, uh, chapter 5, and, uh, well, let's begin at verse 18. There is no way that uh, these verses can be properly translated into English. And that is simply because the, word, the, the language they're written in, which is Greek, is a very different kind of uh, language. Greek says everything uh, without full stops. Uh, it starts over here and then continues by saying another thing until there's another thing to say, and it keeps going all the way through without taking a breath or a pause. It's like an ongoing just a minute. That's how Greek writes. And only every uh, long time do you get the break of a pause. But if you're trying to do that in English, that doesn't work. So you've got to do something with it, and they've done the best they could. But if you look at verse 18 here, where it says, be filled, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, at that point, a great long sentence opens up. And it reads like this. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So verse 21 depends on verse 18. The submitting in verse 21 is part of being filled with the Spirit. Then in the next verse, in verse 22, the wives bit, which in English you have to, you have to start another sentence. It's not their fault. Uh, wives submit to your husbands. It's not helped by the fact that in, in our kind of version they put a little paragraph header above it, which helps if you're trying to understand it, but it doesn't help you realize that it's part of the same thing. You're to be filled with the Spirit, speaking, submitting, singing. Sorry, speaking, singing, submitting. Then verse 22, it says, wives to husbands as to the Lord. Then in verse 25, it does start and says, husbands love your wives. But there is no new word submit in verse 22. It's all part of being filled with the Spirit, Speaking, singing, submitting, wives to husbands, as to the Lord, then husbands love your wives. It is a very, um, this idea of submission is not there unique to wives. It's part of the whole picture of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, the idea of submission, who submits to whom, affects all kinds of things, doesn't it? It affects relationships with parents, relationships in the workplace, in our politics, and it's all over the shop. There are two basic approaches. They're reflected in the John passage, if you look at those two loves, And then in the Ephesians passage, in the way that it's been traditionally expounded and in the way it's often more more, uh, accurately expounded today. Equality or submission. There's a traditional model in marriage. When I was um, at university in the 70s, it was a slightly awkward time. I'm glad to think that there's no awkwardness now. Um, um, But there was a a rising tide of a sense that uh, this was all supposed to be mutual. But we'd all inherited this uh, hierarchical model. And uh, the way it was resolved, that tension, was normally by someone saying, uh, normally a man... Um, well, you've got to be practical, haven't you? I mean, you know, I can't just have saying, no, darling, I submit to you. No, darling, I submit to you. (laughs) Uh, Got to be practical. Someone's got to make a decision in the end. And it always seemed to me that was a particularly naff way of approaching Scripture. Because it seemed to me that Scripture was well able to offer something as a practical solution of getting by if it wanted to. But it never does. It goes for these real principled issues. It used to be that there was a clear hierarchical model. 
It's often defended by Christians, saying, well, someone's got to make the decisions. But then there's a more modern uh, way forward, a more modern model, where both of you are equal. But that's got problems built into it too. And I have to make a guess at which of those poses the stronger challenge for any group of people that I'm in front of. So I'm going to guess, and I can't say whether I'm guessing rightly, I'm going to guess that I'm faced with a more traditional community, and that means I'm going to have a bit more of a go at hierarchy, and then just in case I've convinced you by mistake, I'm going to have a bit of a, a minor go at mutuality and equality, because I think they're both flawed. But the reason I do that is partly because my own pastoral experience is that us men are far more confused than you women. One role for us has gone, but nothing really has taken its place. So we either feel that as Christian men, our job is to murmur, well, yes, dear, whatever you say, because I'm supposed to be equal now and I can no longer ask you to do what I say, thinking that that's equality. Or, and this happens sometimes, we overreact and grow beards and wear lumberjack shirts and go back to a kind of chest beating. And both of those uh, experiences control what I think we might do with Scripture here. So first, and much more to say on this, let me say something about hierarchy. First of all, it's got a great deal going for it. Would you please turn to 1 Corinthians? I'll give you a page number in a minute. Uh, chapter 15. Uh, and verse 28, page 1156. Those who want to defend the... Um, hierarchical principle, are often not just interested in it in relation to marriage, but of course it surfaces a lot in relation to what is the role of men and women in leadership in the church. Because if Jesus is eternally subordinate to his Father, then in that case, there's a permanent subordination allowed. And that means that it's possible to conceive of a situation in which women are always going to be subordinate to the man, whether that's in marriage or in leadership. It's just the permanent state of affairs. It's written into the nature of who God is. And 1 Corinthians 15, 28 is one of the primary verses that's used to um, back that. I don't know whether I'm talking about something you believe, but it does you no harm to know that it's there. What's going on? Well, uh, when he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Well, there you go. Son is going to be made subject Jesus is permanently subordinate. Women are permanently subordinate. Uh, that's how things are going to be in leadership. That's how things are going to be in marriage. Well, that's what it says. But we might pay some attention to the context of what's going on here. Paul has written this long, 
piece from verse 20 about what has happened with Jesus after the resurrection. I'm going to start at verse 20. I'm going to kind of race through it because I want you to catch a sense of the, the momentum. It's like a ski jump. This He kind of takes off and then realizes when he's in the middle of the air that he's got a problem and has to do something about it. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. But for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he, quote, has put everything under his feet. Paul at this point is in midair. He's taken off from the ski jump. Now he suddenly realizes that he's got a problem and he needs to make a mid-air correction. Ah, when I say everything, now when it says that everything's been put under him, it's clear it doesn't include God himself. He suddenly realizes that if you took exactly and only what he'd said in those last few verses you could end up thinking that there were like two gods. Remember this is very early in the life of the church. We take some things for granted that he couldn't assume they would automatically know. So when he says, now when it says that everything's been put under it, it's clear it doesn't include God himself, who put everything under Christ. Let's be clear, God, God retains a kind of priority. Everything we're saying about God the Son, Jesus, that's all true, but it has to be ordered in some way. You can't just leave... Jesus, uh, the, the son, kind of in midair, having been resurrected with everything under him, and, oh, how does that relate to God? These two have to be put into some kind of order. So that's exactly what he does. Verse, it, it's clear it doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. Verse 28, when he's done this, then the son himself, actually it's not will be made subject, will be put, because the verbs are the same here. The ver- son himself will be put under him who put everything under him. Let's reword that. The Son himself will be put under the God who put everything under the Son, so that God may be all in all. It's biblical, but we knew from John that there were two kinds of loves, hierarchical, equal. He wants to avoid two Godheads, so he introduces ordering. Now that is different the ordering of how things are within the nature of God from um, a kind of functional... Well, of course, Jesus, God the Son, is kind of, you know, uh, he's good, um, but God the Father's bigger and better. Now, this is the brain hurt moment. Um, I suspect that for practical purposes, and of course... It is only for practical purposes. If I put it to you as a question, you'd deny it because you knew the right answers. We end up with three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all doing slightly different things. Son of God appears in flesh at at Christmas and uh, gets crucified on Good Friday and risen uh, and raised at Easter. Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and God the Father's doing something in creation in the background. Uh, we kind of allocate to the Trinity such different roles 
that we've ended up almost giving them different characters. The early church knew that that was a mistake and fought very, very hard to insist on the unity of God. God is more one than we might often suppose. And it matters then when we get wrong the balance between affirming his oneness and affirming his threeness. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Paul has been talking about the Christ who has been raised. And one of the reasons he he hits a bit of a challenge when it comes to verses 27 and 28 is he's dealing with the incarnate Christ who is raised and then ascended. And he's getting into the territory of what relationship has the ascended, is the incarnate ascended Christ got to God the Father. This was early days. It was hard work to work out this relationship. So yes, he rightly says that there is an underness about the Son. There is a from and a to about God the Father, God the Son. There's a begetting and a begotten about God the Father, God the Son. There's an above and a below. Nonetheless, they are one God. And if we don't respect that adequately, we will get into a problem. And let me suggest to you how that works. If we say... Well, um, women are obviously uh, permanently subordinate to men in marriage and in in leadership. We'll do that often on the grounds that we think there's a hierarchy, that there's God the Father and God the Son. God the Son does what God the Father says. God the Son tells us what to do. And we only see it in those terms. It's not wrong to see it in those terms, but we only see it in those terms. Jesus is subject to God. Jesus does what God says and tells us what to do. It's what it says in John 15. But that can project, and I have seen it project, back into God. (coughs) A God who is Jesus plus, if I can put it like that. That is, Ben, can I borrow you for a minute? Because you're bigger than me, that's why I need you. Can you. Can you stand, put your feet there? Okay, the, um, uh, I'm, this, 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 I dread to think how this is going to sound on the tape, but never mind. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm God the Son and God the Father. The danger of seeing things hierarchically is that I'm the nice guy. I'm the one you see. But meanwhile, there's a God the Father behind who is bigger and is waiting to leap out. I'm and leaping. You're leaping, yeah, leap. Thank you, you can go and sit down now. Um, Thank you. There is this other character to God who sends Jesus, because he's not quite the same as Jesus. And by not quite being Jesus, that means that Jesus can be the nice guy and God the Father can stay the caricature of the Old Testament tyrant who doesn't really love us. We end up being unconvinced about the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So it's important to insist that there is no godness hiding behind the man Jesus, waiting to leap out and surprise us, that ta-da, God was a tyrant all along. Marriage and relationships. The tradition can be very threatening. It's defended on the grounds of being practical, but it's a bad defense. So much more quickly, let's look at a danger of mutuality. It's harder to look at because this is more in our culture at the moment. That can project back into God a lack of order because everything's the same. God the Father, God the Son, well, it's all the same. There's no difference. There's no differentiation. There's a lack of respect for the ordering within the one Godhead. And once you get to that, then you get to a kind of mushy humanness which leads to the the confusion around relationships that we see in our own time, where all that matters now is not not the given qualities, male-female, but the chosen qualities, like these relationships are faithful, permanent, and stable. Two people of the same sex, five people of the same sex, five people of different sexes, whatever you may wish, because there's now no difference. There's no difference in God, and therefore there's no difference in humanness. Or more likely, there's no difference in humanness because we've taken on a kind of picture that if there's a God, everything's the same. Both of those are caricatures, and they proceed from sin. In the hierarchy, there's obviously an attachment to, well, I'm in charge. I'm in charge, so that's obvious. But it's also a problem in the mutual issue, where I don't want anyone to be in charge at all. It's not surprising, in other words, that we're confused. What I'm trying to establish is that the confusion we have in our own day about relationships has a long, long history of how you interpret what God is in relation to humankind. And it doesn't help always that the key is in the Trinity, which is complicated. Modern differences are written into the different approaches to Scripture. But there is a united witness in the early centuries. Augustine, who was writing, I suppose, what, 5th century, um, put it like this. When it says Jesus walked on water, does that mean that the Father was kind of walking alongside, holding his hands? Because Jesus says, whatever I do, the Father's doing. So does that mean that Jesus was walking along the water, kind of holding his father's hand, invisibly? No, it doesn't. What it means when he says, whatever I do, the father is doing, is that there is a from and a to, a begetting and a begotten, but that everything that God does, God does. Everything that God does, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do. Yes, Jesus is the one who is crucified upon the cross. Nonetheless, as 2 Corinthians 5 has it, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation. I am very aware of how complicated that makes things. But let me try and conclude by being really dead simple. Go back to Ephesians 5 for a minute. 
These things are in the cultural air, and that's why I've done so much tonight. So we can have a sense when people are talking nonsense about relationships, that we, we kind of can locate it and pin it on where it all comes from, on a preference for hierarchy or a preference for mutuality and equality. Uh, but chapter 5 and verse 21, notice what it says, submit to one another. It does not say submit to one another out of, reveren- out of reverence for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It says for re- out of reverence for Christ. That is our attention. Our reverence is to be given to God as he makes himself known in Jesus for our salvation from sin. The creed that we had earlier, it was a version of Philippians 2. Because God wants us to take our cue, not from endless speculation about the nature of the Trinity. That explains a lot. But in terms of controlling behavior, he wants us to take it from the way he's made himself known, which is Jesus. And Philippians 2, that's the way he's made himself known. Or look at chapter 5 and verse 1 here of Ephesians. Be imitators of God, therefore. Oh, well, Alan's wrong. Well, no, not entirely. Because carry on as dearly loved children and live a life of love. How? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The key issue in the management of our relationships is given that we are sinful and this world is sinful, what did Jesus do about it? What did God in Jesus do about it? He gave up his rights. That tells us all we need to know about the management of our relationships. Give up your rights. Now, maybe you're sitting here contemplating a relationship. Maybe you're saying, well, um, there is that gorgeous person in my life that uh, I'm just wondering about. (laughs) Or whatever it is that girls say under those circumstances. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) And of course, if you say give up your rights, you say, well, yes, but what if she doesn't? What if he doesn't? It is such a high-risk strategy. It could all go so horribly wrong. But the beauty, the beauty of Christian relationships is that they take that risk. There is an extraordinary beauty about a relationship which has taken that risk of giving up the rights that each one has can't get it from anywhere else. You can't get it from the Old Testament, actually. You can get it in a few places as they're looking forward to God's character revealed in a certain way, but mostly you look at what Jesus did about the fact that we are sinful and put ourselves first. What he did was send Jesus, follow his example, do the Philippians 2, do the uh, uh, Ephesians 5. Give up your rights. It is such a risk but it is worth it. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment. I've gone on for a long time, I know, but I'm leaving. Um, 
And just, just take a moment to just bring to your mind, just, numbers don't matter, but the, the top one, two, or three relationships that dominate your life. Lord God, you know those relationships. You made relationship and you have redeemed it. And we are in those relationships as those who are sinners, but forgiven sinners. Give us the grace to be in those relationships as those who stand not upon our created rights, but upon the calling of Jesus to be like him. Not to order things by hierarchy because that's practical nor to order things by equality because that's mushy. But to order things according to love, the love of those with whom we are in relationship. For we ask it in his name. Amen.